Hello and welcome to the Rondo Podcast. I'm Nicola McCarthy talking all things football, both on and off the pitch. First of all, a very happy new year to you all. This is the first Rondo Podcast of 2019, but it certainly won't be the last. We've big plans for this year and I'll keep you posted on that. Now, to get us underway this year, I am absolutely delighted that joining me is sports lawyer and author of brand new book, Done Deal. It's Daniel G. Daniel has fast experience working in sports and football law with players, clubs, broadcasters and more. So I will let him explain who he is and what he does. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. and Thanks for having me on. So, I, I mean, I'll be brief because I think the, the more interesting stuff rather than my background is the things we're going to be talking about in a little bit more detail. But I'm a sports and football lawyer. Um, I work mainly in football, uh, working a lot with players and agents uh, that can involve the intricacies of a a transfer, a contract renegotiation. Uh, it involves lots of different commercial deals um, and uh, working with uh, agents and players on a variety of disputes, uh, issues involving reputation management, um, uh, some things uh, that can be as pretty high profile and others that are a little bit more mundane, um, like buying a house or um, family issues or other bits and pieces. So a lot of my stuff goes across the full spectrum of what you know, footballers, sportsmen, um, people in the um, the public domain, uh, sort of require from 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 a lawyer. Fantastic, and this is all covered in your new book. So, just tell us what inspired you to put this all together in a book. Well, I I say I blame my wife, but it's my wife's <laughs> inspiration really, because a long time ago when we when we met, I was uh, I was starting to write some articles and some law journals, um, but ultimately in the end, you know, writing in a slightly drier law journal isn't quite the same as um, as writing a book, and the in, in between period um, really was me starting my own. Uh, football law blog, uh, writing to a more writing more accessible pieces to a much larger audience, and um, and going from there. And people said some very nice things about it. I got introduced to some fantastic people along the way, including my now it sounds ridiculous to say, but my book agent, uh, David Luxton, who was fantastic and um, and managed after a lot of um, uh, arm twisting, I'm sure, with publishers to to get a deal for me with Bloomsbury Sport. And from there, it was a matter of um, you know, trying to find some time, <laughs> as we were talking about before sure. we started with the show, yes. to, to fit in everything and do everything from a, a professional professional perspective and fit all of the family commitments into to to spend the best part of probably two and a half years writing it in my in my free time to the stage we're now thank goodness in where um you know people have said some very nice things about the book and uh to it launching um on the 24th so yeah it's just a very exciting time but uh, you know a very busy time also with uh, the window open and in full full force and um trying to balance all the usual things that, that come around at this time too Absolutely, absolutely. Well, congratulations on getting it done. Um, like you say, I'm sure it was uh, it was tough enough with everything else going on, and especially at this time of year. But uh, no, fantastic. So so well done. I had Thank a read you. actually at some of your blog pieces as well, uh, and some really really interesting um, things that you've done. So. What's interesting, Daniel, I think, is, you know, you almost get a a 360 look at everything from players to agents and clubs to to broadcasting. So, I mean, you get the overall picture, really. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, <clears throat> uh, initially, a lot of my work was actually uh, in in sports broadcasting rights, and that was where my some of my expertise lay. Um, but that sort of morphed into a lot of the different sports and football regulations that I got more familiar with and got more experience in, including sort of sports and football takeovers as well. But you're, you're totally right. A lot of my work is pretty varied, and that actually is part of the, the beginning of the book, which talks about the football world or the football ecosystem football industry ecosystem as i put it which is you know there's uh, players are very much in the epicenter of everything that goes on in the in the football business but ultimately it is um you know realistically that the money drivers and most of those money drivers come by way of broadcasting rights and the, the monies that sky bt and the foreign broadcasters bring in um for those rights globally um and alongside those you obviously have you know the fans who are paying for those subscriptions um in order to be able to you know view their favorite team on a weekly basis so i'm lucky enough to have had quite a lot of experience in lots of different sort of legal facets but most importantly sort of got a pretty pretty unique bird's eye perspective on how the industry works exactly you said from a 360 perspective the money flows coming in from broadcasting rights into the clubs and then out again to the to the to the players and managers really and and how all of those interrelations and interrelationships work we'll start with broadcasting then if if you don't mind in tv rights mm-hmm. um you know we've seen so many changes we we had a little brief chat about digital media as well uh, before we started recording so how have things changed i know it's a big question but what are the biggest changes that you have seen daniel in terms of broadcasting and tv rights and some new platforms coming in and mm. um like twitter and facebook and getting i suppose some a slice of the pie or whatever way you want to look at it it's a really interesting question i think we could probably have our own four hour podcast I, just on, i was just thinking just that, that which would yeah. be which would be quite cool in itself to be fair um, we'll do that we'll do that I'd love to um and i can definitely introduce you to some great people that definitely know a lot more about some of the aspects than me but there's there's loads of really interesting overlapping themes um i think one of the first is the the competition that emerged midway through um the last decade uh between two huge um companies at least in terms of companies competing for sports and particularly live premier league broadcasting rights in the uk which is bt and, and sky mm-hmm. now um, th- that competition effectively ramped up two sets of auction prices by seventy percent, meaning that the domestic um, the bet domestic package as of the last deal was uh, approaching the the five billion pounds mark, which is obviously um, hugely significant um, yeah. and still does dwarf the overseas rights total package. But whether that equalizes out in time is a different matter. So the first is competition between two very big broadcasters looking for different things. One, um, BT trying to protect its broadband offering and the other, Sky, trying to protect its live sport offering and yeah. try to bundle all the different broadband TV, mobile, landline rights all together for equivalent of a quad play offering to some degree. So that's one of the sort of key drivers. I think the other, which is, again, uh, definitely a developing trend, um, exactly as you mentioned with platforms like Twitter, um, Amazon, Facebook, um, and others looking to get into um, the live sports right space, if it's in the UK, if it's in US, if it's in India or particular jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a variety of different reasons why those type of platforms will want to 
um, pay large sums of money um, for particular rights, depending on what their rationale might be. Now, if we just take Amazon, Amazon Prime, for example, with its purchase of a couple of live Premier League packages for next season for the Premier League, that brings with it its own queries as to why they've done that. Is it to retain Amazon Prime customers? Um, is it to bring new Amazon Prime customers to um, that would be interested in watching rights? Is it actually to, um, uh, as part of a wider play, because US research is showing that Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime customers are spend four times the amount than a normal Amazon customer on the Amazon uh, website. So mm -hmm. the, the, there's really interesting developments that are occurring around data, um, around preferences, around consumer experience, um, at least for Amazon. There's different reasons why Facebook may want to <clears throat> try and keep more people and more eyeballs on their platform for particular reasons. And the same with Twitter for um, uh, for similar types of stickiness effect, if that's the right way of putting it. So if I just keep with those two, which is competition and what I guess you'd call is the OTT, which is the over the top, the internet enabled drive towards live sports rights and particular premium sports rights like NFL and ATP and Premier League and, uh, and Champions League and other types of rights, it becomes pretty clear that there's a, there's a new frontier developing with tech companies particular platform tech companies really um, looking for particular business cases for, for, you know, entering into particular markets. And what does it mean, do you think, for traditional broadcasters, this competition? Again, it's a, it's a really interesting one. I think, well, if I, if, I, if I reverse it, what does it mean for fans is also an important query because it would yes. take exactly like Premier League rights in the UK. Um, you know, fans are suddenly having to fork out three sets of subscriptions, whereas a decade or so ago, it was only really Sky that they had to buy a subscription for. It's a good now, point, yeah. You know, it, it leads to, you know, increased costs to a, a degree. There's obviously greater competition, um, but whether that leads to great, greater, um, you know, commercial value for the fans is one thing. I, I think ultimately um, Sky and BT, for example, in, in the UK are very much considering you know, their offering, you know, a lot of their offering now is they have OTT platforms to be able mm -hmm. to broadcast to all of the games, either via SkyGo or the BT app, et cetera. So that's a viable alternative. But I think there's an interesting trend, which is, you know, people, at least the evidence seems to suggest from the NFL and from the Premier League that, you know, um, there are different audiences now um, approaching the consumption of live sport and, and television generally in very different ways. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of older audiences, maybe still not cord cutting, i.e. still with um, premium type of subscriptions and satellite TV and um, the, the full Skype spectrum. And then you have maybe the younger millennials, centennials, who are perhaps getting towards that professional age where they're earning significant amounts and being able to um, start, you know, have, you know, start families and um, and have that disposable income that are effectively only purchasing OTT offerings. Um, if it's Netflix or if it's Amazon Prime, or you know, they're picking and choosing a lot more than necessarily one very high premium product. Mm -hmm. So the the question I think for broadcasters, and it's not a new question, is how do you cater for lots of different audiences? whilst at the same time embedding particular 
premium content as the driver for those subscription services. We've seen other platforms and, and companies enter the market, um, like Eleven Sports, for example, that came in and, and maybe it didn't go as planned. You know, is it a hard market to be in? There's no doubt it's a very difficult industry and, and an industry mm-hmm. that you have to be able to spend um, significant sums in in order to ramp up demand for subscriptions full stop. If you don't really have some of the premium drivers and you'd probably have to consider in the UK it being live Premier League rights and live Champions League rights, then um, there's a query over whether everything else is a somewhat secondary set of um, um rights because the two premium rights are so expensive and um uh, and so important to to, to bt and sky um mm-hmm. as well so um with 11 the interesting interesting debate that was being had a few months ago was whether they were circumventing the, the 3pm rule in order to broadcast la liga in the uk on the yes. internet um and that caused obviously lots of interesting regulatory and practical issues that, that, that then they rode back on in the end so you know there's lots of reports that they've got you know they're in financial difficulty um and w- without a real a real backbone of premium rights. I mean, even, you know, we talk about Satanta and other companies back in the day that had those rights and still couldn't monetize and, yes. and get those, you know, critical numbers of subscriptions um, in order to make it a profitable business. You know, it, it's very hard to break that duopoly. Um, and you can see with Amazon or someone like, some companies like that, they're just buying small incremental rights as a, yes. a driver, maybe for other types of things rather than just to get subscribers. Yes. And something that occurred to me just then as well, Daniel, is that presumably what when you buy rights, you have certain regions or countries that you can broadcast in. If an mm. Amazon or a Twitter or a Facebook comes in, it, do the same restrictions in terms of regions and countries apply or you know, could it be quite disrupting if they are showing games, um, you know, worldwide, if that makes sense? It, it does, very much so. And usually the, the rights holder will delineate on a territory or region by region basis. The issue, if you remember some time ago with the pub broadcasting cases um, where um, pub landlords and ladies were purchasing like Greek decoder cards in order to be shown in their pub in the UK for a lower yes. um, and were paying lower subscription charges than Sky or BT were offering was that because that was a sort of digit and a satellite overspill the difference now is if you are um, if Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or whatever that may be that are streaming services um, over the top through internet enabled TVs or laptops or tablets then you can effectively geo-block on a territory-by-territory basis. Now, there are ways around that through VPNs, et cetera, but the the general approach is you can block particular territories and assign particular broadcasters or platforms to those territories to keep it as narrow or as broad as they want it. Okay, bit of a broad one again, but where do you think things are going in that space? If you mean um, are rights holders trying their best to be able to target particular territories or market particular territories to particular platforms because they think they can grow them in lots of different directions then yes i mean there's there's, there's there are there are plenty of examples of uh, rights holders wanting to segment particular territories for exactly that reason um and you can see you know if you give the 
Premier League example, as usual, you know, BT and Sky only have the rights for the UK, but they can market that to a very um, uh, demand-centric subscriber base. Mm -hmm. The opposite is also true, whereby BT and Sky will not want um, anybody else in the UK to be able to get a subscription for Premier League matches than through those entities. And that can sometimes be the issue where, you know, pirated or particular types of feeds are provided for by third parties. Third parties are profiting from that. And that can be a whole new area of copyright infringement that that the Premier League, you know, whoever, whichever entity owns the rights will, will crack down on significantly. Okay, moving on to the contract side of things, uh, a very, very busy time for all football lawyers and sports lawyers. What has been your experience in, in transfer windows? I mean, what does it look like for a football lawyer? A lot of the time I find I'm very reactive. Like you, with the best with the best will in the world, you can always ring around all of the different agents and agencies that you have the strong relationships with and say, you know, what what's what does it look like happening this window? You know, and they'll say, well, we're thinking of, you know, if 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 this club sells this player and then this chief scout says that, you know, our guy is third on the list. And if this happens, they may free up some money there. It, it's effectively like trying to you know, align 17 different uh, possibilities in one very easy, non-easy, non non-straightforward way. So yeah. everything is almost contingency planning. Um, but a lot of the time then when something happens, it happens very quickly and I get the call and, you know, sometimes it it's not necessarily an expected um, call or an expected transfer, but something happens which sparks off that chain reaction. And then I get the call that says, players moving it's going to happen tomorrow let's get all the paperwork ready let's start drafting the contracts and the particular bits that we need um to have a look through because you know he's going to do his medical and everything moves quite quickly <laughs> and I'm i think sure. what people are, are quite <laughs> interested in is the sort of what you know what, what what are the actual documents that i will look over what are the types of things that cause the negotiation to you know drag on longer than usual sometimes and, and what are the, the sticking points that sort of can occur and there's, there's, there's plenty <laughs> the answer i'm sure there are so can you give us just an idea yeah. of, a, of a couple of things maybe that you know can hold things up or quite difficult to um to get right yeah there's, i think there's lots i think i think the, the, the three i would say um which are sometimes the key documents one is um the effectively um what's called the schedule two um uh document which is appended to the player's employment contract and the schedule two um document can be relatively short or long but details how much the player is going to get paid mm -hmm. um uh, particular and all bonuses that will be paid sometimes can include um uh release clauses buyout clauses uh, relegation reduction clauses um a, a wide variety um of different particular clauses that clubs will want in in relation to um what happens if there's a breach of contract and on termination how does compensation get paid etc so mm -hmm. those type of things can be had to be negotiated quite significantly like even for example the, the definition of an appearance can be really important because if it's a 15 minute appearance you may get a player may get paid x amount if it's um, a, a starting appearance you may get paid this amount um, if it's after 25 games he gets a, a a wage uplift of x hundred tens of thousand pounds so even the one word can mean a lot of things in particular ways sure. um, 
another element is the um, image rights deal that can that can impact in a lot of ways so mm -hmm. you know for for elite clubs signing elite players they will want some type of control over the ability for players to be able to be available for um, club duties and marketing duties over and above you know a minimum number of uh, appearances um, mm -hmm. they'll want to pay the player for um, uh, appearing x amount of times per year with its uh, club sponsors with particular partners um, and there can be quite a lot of detail involved in then what deals a player can then enter into commercial deals a player can enter into if a yes. club for example doesn't want those uh, their, their players to enter into commercial deals with competitors of yes. club sponsors so all of those type of things can take a little bit can take significant time and you know the the other the other element briefly is um the representation contract between <clears throat> what usually happens um, is an, an agent will, on the whole, tend to work with a, a club and a player. So there'll be what's called a, um, a tripartite agreement, and that agreement will be between the club, the player, and his agent. Um, and that will detail the amounts of money that um, and, uh, the club will usually pay, pay to the player's agent for all the services that that agent is uh, undertaking for the player and the club. Um, and so that can sometimes be a quite well one of the most important documents for the agent because that will detail how he gets paid what what he gets paid under what conditions he'll be paid so if the player is no longer registered with the club will the agent still get paid his commission installments etc so there's right. lots of things that can go on in parallel at the same time and that's the, the, the that's the sort of initial flavor of the type of things that i would i would try and get involved in okay so from the agent's uh, perspective as well they would get commission installments like you say on other parts of the contract so it's not just the deal correct so um if we if we if we take away his on field uh, players on field um deals for example um uh, i.e. his employment contract and we we turn for a second to you know a, a boot deal a, you know a beats deal um a, a fashion brand deal a um you know a consumer electronics deal a you know luxury underwear brand deal if that was a possibility whatever else it may be yeah. um the um the, the agent will also um if he has um that representation ability to to try and find commercial deals for the player in order to maximize you know uh, the revenues during the, the player's career but also you know build a brand for the player and you know we we, we talked previous just before that we, we started about the sort of interaction of digital to to football and the wider sports industry, you know, a big yeah. growing element for a number of younger players and older players alike is the ability to work out, you know, who these individual who these individual players are um, in terms of their brand appearance. What do they want to be saying to their wider audience? It may be that actually they don't want a brand because all they want to be doing is concentrating on their football and let the football do the talking but for a number of players that i work with you know the outward appearance of what they are trying to do a particular type of ethos that they're trying to project becomes a very important element to the wider their you know their wider influences but also their wider career ambitions they don't want to be just seen as a footballer they want to be seen as entrepreneurs as trendsetters as um you know social um uh, social influences really in lots of different ways and, and that can have a big bearing as to what type of agency a player will want to go to the types of people they want to surround themselves with um, and you know their, their general approach to um, you know on-field and off-field management mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And have you seen any evidence, Daniel, of the players' social media following uh, impact um, a a deal as well between the club and the player? Does that yet have any sway or do you think that's something that we'll we'll see more of? Um, I suppose it's an added value really to the club. I think that's exactly right for the time being. Now, I don't think anytime soon a, a player was going to be bought um, for his social media following far from it, it it's mm-hmm. always you know first is on field and what they and what added let's say added value what value uh, and talent they provide on the pitch and how does that fit in with the, the club's on-field playing strategy of course nonetheless yeah. obviously it becomes really important you need to look at Ronaldo's transfer to Juve for example yeah. the you know the big amplification and the big you know followers that Juve got because Ronaldo you know quite rightly is a uh, is a, a worldwide global superstar in his own right that's a really interesting area and I'm sure one that's going to continue to to evolve you know for the, the next number of years so just coming back to, to, to the transfer window I mean I'm sure you've had a couple of very busy deadline days um have you ever had a player kind of waiting in a car or an airport or, <laughs> or something to sign a deal and you're just trying to get everything sorted the truth is um and it doesn't sound unfortunately as sexy as it, it it's made out sometimes is that I much prefer to be nowhere near a training ground, um, a, a club stadium um, or club offices if I can help it. Um, ultimately, um, I will try and be in the comfort of my own office, yeah. um, <laughs> looking through the, the detail and trying to, um, you know, minimize the pressure that is put on everybody when deadlines uh, need to be adhered to so you know you can sit down with um you know a cold towel and look at it in the cold light of day to make sure everything is being done um correctly by the rules and that you're getting the, the best deal really for your clients so mm-hmm. you know i I'm, i don't tend to be in any um <laughs> not that i'm looking for the limelight too much apart from publicizing my book a bit but um <laughs> I don't tend to be in the, the, you know, the player photos or be at the training ground or be with the managers because I, I, I usually, and you can probably pick me up on this when I, when you do see me in a picture with something <laughs> in the future, but usually <laughs> I prefer to just, you know, get on with stuff in the, in the background and, um, and, and, uh, and I think it usually leads for a less pressurized environment really. Um, and that I think is sometimes, um, you know, you know not a bad, not a bad start. <laughs> So in terms of the global growth of the game, Daniel, and continuing on that trajectory, I mean, how difficult is it dealing with other clubs from other countries, Mm. with language barriers, with Mm. everything that that brings? I mean, that must be quite tricky. Yeah, it's an interesting one because what you will sometimes, what you will sometimes have or the types of things that I'll have to provide help on is um, a foreign agent um, who I'm introduced to that has you know a player moving for multi-million pounds to an elite Premier League club um, Mm -hmm. that um, doesn't speak the language has no idea about English employment law doesn't understand what an image rights agreement is Um, his contracts may be in Spanish he doesn't have a house he doesn't have a, um, um, you know, anywhere for his family to live. He's got no idea about which area of a particular city to live in. Um, you know, he um, needs to, you know, be integrated as quickly as possible into his new club surrounding. And and 
the point is obviously I'm I'm not certainly not there to do all of, all of that. But the point is is that you you know you sometimes are there to try and help a person as a human being yes. <laughs> try and yeah. settle. And obviously yeah. that's the, the the club's role. But to be fair, if if an agent doesn't have much experience, sometimes it can be of particular clubs or dealing with particular situations. Then um, you know as a as a lawyer, you're there really to try and help as much as possible. What have you seen? as your biggest challenges what what do you consider the biggest challenges in your role it's a really good one i think ultimately what i try and do is convey um the risk of doing things in particular ways i've got to try and explain to my clients um sometimes risk but also uh complicated things in an easily understandable way and sometimes that's difficult with legal Mm. documents so I sometimes find the hardest challenge is trying to um, articulate that to Mm -hmm. you know players and agents who ultimately are just keen on getting the deals done I'm sure have you ever had a deal that hasn't gone through because you have been trying to sort something that is unable to be resolved look there are always there are always instances where um, things um, uh, f- fall away and don't get finalised for particular reasons. Usually, though, when it's come to um, come to for me to start dealing with it, usually the commercials are already finalised because that is the part of the agent to get all of that done with the negotiating club. So, um, I would hope that I'm not responsible for you know um, particular deals falling away or falling apart. But there are always examples when deals might be on the table something changes you know a club may want another player instead and you know the the player that we were acting for was only one of three potential options and they decided to go a club decided to go with someone else so you know the deals not happening and going over getting not getting over the line happen all the time hopefully it's not too much because of what I'm doing (laughs) (laughs) like I say you've had experience with players with but also on the other side of things with managers and with clubs as well yeah, exactly. So um, we, we've acted for a variety of clubs, uh, well, managers first, when, you know, unfortunately, um, a club decides to change manager. And that can obviously be a stressful time for the manager, not only the manager, mm-hmm. but all of his backroom staff as well. That happens on, you know, occasion. Um, yeah. Especially and, when it happens it, suddenly, I imagine. Yeah, it can be. Uh, and it can be a real shock to the system for all, all concerned. And, you know, we've got a pretty specialised employment law team um, at Sheridan's is the law for my work at, um, who I work in conjunction with um, okay. for all of those types of, you know, contract termination matters, which can be, you know, pretty stressful um, um, occasions, really. So, um, yeah, not the funnest side of the, the game, as you can imagine. And and then on the club side, you know, I do, I tend to work with agents and players more because otherwise there can be a bit of a conflict that I can't have too many clubs of my clients if one of my... yes agents players as then being transferred to that club so i tend yes. not to act for too many clubs but um i've been involved in a few lately um a few um tra- uh, takeovers so for the clubs that i've acted for the, the buyers i.e the, the current owners now of those clubs i i will uh, stay in and do have great relationships with them and but they're usually the exception to the rule in terms of the women's game obviously massive growth there i don't know if you have any experience um dealing in the women's game or how how do you see things have changed there i mean it's obviously gotten a lot more professional and um i imagine obviously the legal side com- comes into that 
it's it's true things are evolving really really well i think i mean i work with two or three agencies that have a number of um uh women's super league players on their books at some of the top clubs um now the 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 the, the money on offer obviously is dwarfed by you know the premier league um wages and stuff etc yeah. but the 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 the, the great thing and the cool thing we're seeing is, um, you know, the way that clubs are incorporating their women's teams into their wider commercial strategies. Um, yes. And that, that's very much something that's front and centre where, you know, Liverpool have their own um, um, shirt brand sponsor for um, for the women's team. You know, you have Everton with their Awakers, I think, being um, launched by their women's team as well. You know, there's this great opportunities and actually at pretty um, uh, competitive um, uh, activation rates for um, for brands to be able to activate with a you know a really growing innovative set of um, teams that are going places so I I only see real positives for the women's game you know obviously one of the main elements that then they need to drive are you know the commercial broadcasting rights um, and yes, that's probably yes. one of the new areas that they'd like to try and at some point I guess in the medium to longer term look for um, look for some um, lucrative um, rights to be able to funnel into then the women's game and at the same time you know there's lots of reports about you know prob some you know problems um, so for example uh, uh, WSL players aren't um, uh, don't well, for some of the non-elite clubs they don't have uh, private medical insurance or mm -hmm. um, some of the standard um, employment contracts don't allow for um, uh, don't allow for particular types of um, sorry allow for termination of a women's contract um, okay. after a particular amount of time if they're injured which is obviously different to the men's game now granted the the, the money on offer uh, and the commercial viability is potentially less in the women's game but these are the type of things that i think you know are raised and rightly so by some of the women's game stakeholders that probably need to be addressed at least in the short term so um you know in summary in some of the deals that i've helped with um there's there's a growing appetite to um, commercialize the women's game. It's just how best to do that. But at the same time, there's some there's some lucrative deals out there, especially for some of the high profile elite women's footballers. Absolutely. Just something popped into my head there when you were talking. Um, when I was at a conference a few months ago in Glasgow, I was talking to a former female player and she was even talking about things like maternity leave and just kind of basic things in a, that just don't exist in a contract because they've never kind of had to exist in a contract, you know, it's, which is interesting. T totally agree. I mean, you know, um, it, it sounds even ridiculous to say, but, you know, what happens, uh, it's not what happens, it's what protections should any woman have in place if they've signed a long-term employment contract yeah can't work before because they're pregnant and um decide quite rightfully so to be able to have a child <laughs> these, these type of things just aren't really well i say not considered the, the, the simple point is i think is that most women footballers that i speak to and um, decide to put their profession before their own 
um, you know, personal relationships really in a lot of ways because it's taken them so long to get to that stage yes. that they don't want to put, any, to put anything in jeopardy, which could effectively jeopardise, you know, um, you know their their careers. Um, and there's a, there's a chapter in the book, Daniel, called "Footballers and Managers Behaving Badly." Um, not, not not to mention um, anything in particular, but what way do things work whenever you've got to protect? Um, a player or a manager from from a certain incident or yeah, you're totally right. So <clears throat> it can it can work in lots of different ways. Um, the the type of examples I give are all sort of publicly reported examples anyway. But a, a lot of the stuff actually goes back to either you know on field matters where you know you could have elbowed someone, um, yeah. spat at someone, uh, broken someone's leg. Um, uh, being retrospectively banned for particular diving offences or other types of um, um, other types of things that would have otherwise um, got you a red card. It could be tweeting something you shouldn't have done, like Balotelli did with his sorry with an Instagram post. It could be um, Luis Suarez biting someone. It could be um, you know uh, Rio Ferdinand tweeting something which he did, which got him banned. You know, it could be missing a drugs test. It, you know, there are so many different parts of the regulations um, which can impact on, um, you know, a player's um, career, but also, you know, particular bands that, that can be pretty vital moments of um, a season. So, you know, the, the the types of things that, you know, we talk about um, are effectively, it doesn't sound quite as sexy when you drill it down, but really are breaches of the particular FA, Premier League and Football League regulations, which effectively lead to sporting sanctions and financial penalties. And it's how all of those rules and regulations interlink, uh, how players can get into trouble for tweeting something they shouldn't or kicking someone they shouldn't on the pitch and um, you know what the implications um, can be of that players can't less um, they don't want to be spotted doing things they shouldn't be doing obviously um, and that dig digital reach obviously as we talked about previously can have great impact on players brand but um, very quickly um, a problem can escalate and turn viral as you can imagine. Absolutely. Uh, well, just finally, Daniel, um, I think like we've managed to capture in, the, in this podcast, you know, football is changing so much. Um, the landscape is changing so much. Um, we're at the start of a new year and uh, we're, we're in a transfer window. Uh, what do you see as the big things? Um, you know, I'm sure the book covers a lot of this, but we'll be we'll be looking at in, in the coming year and beyond. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, it's it's not really too novel to say more of the same, but I think the, the there's there's always interesting trends that are, are developing in the industry. I think yeah. um, as I talk about sort of in the last chapter of the book, I think there's interesting times ahead for um, agents in the intermediate regulations, which I think are going to yes. change soon. I think yeah. that's one thing to obviously look out for. In the same way, FIFA have talked about the fact that the, the, the transfer system is going to be changing in particular ways, could be made more transparent, um, mm -hmm. and certain sort of compliance features will be added into that. Um, I, I think generally the really interesting trends are one of transparency as well. We're, we're seeing lots, so much really interesting information being put out there by FIFA, by UEFA, by the FA, 
And just having that information available, I think, in this sort of digital age is, is, is great. I was only reading the, the latest FIFA, sorry, UEFA benchmarking report that recently came out. It's a 125 page, um, you know, effectively PowerPoint presentation giving fantastic detail about everything from broadcasting rights to transfer fees to agents' fees to club ownership to disciplinary, you know, to finances. It was just like a really interesting oversight. So mm-hmm. that's the sort of transparency side. And I think after that, it's, you know, ultimately, you have to. Um, the industry um, is followed by where the money flows in and out, and, and obviously, we, we we started with broadcasting rights. I think it's probably sort of apt that we end with broadcasting rights to the extent that, so long as people are subscribing to um, broadcasters and the broadcasters are willing to spend such huge amounts um, um, on these lucrative rights, the cycles continue. It is yes. effectively when people cord cut or aren't willing to provide um, those same um, high level subscription payments on a monthly basis that then the objective justification effectively for the broadcasters to bid such monies um, decreases so um, you know that that's effectively where the landscape is at the moment broadcasting rights are still huge numbers in the UK and uh, and abroad um, the question is in the three or four cycles ahead how does that actually um, what trends are we likely to see bearing in mind this new sort of internet enabled age um, and and they're the type of things that you know uh, we can probably spend six hours talking about on a future podcast yes no absolutely daniel i'd love to delve into that a bit more with you we will do that in future uh so just in terms of the book um good luck with everything just tell us where we can find the book and where uh we, we can find you on, on social media if anybody wants to get in touch of course, no. Thank you. So, um, you know, it's available um, uh, on Amazon, uh, on the Bloomsbury website, um, you know, Smith, Waterstones, all the usual places. Hopefully, there's a few copies after my mum's bought a few extra ones. Um, <laughs> and you know, I'm on Twitter. My my handle is Football Law. I'm on Instagram. Again, it's uh, my my, tw- uh, my Insta handle is um, Football Law, where I post some. I, I get the um, I get the make taken out of me when I post stats, picture stats, basically. But that's more. Yeah. Or what I try and do on my Instagram account for the footy industry. So if anyone wants to follow me for footy picture stats, you know where to find me. Well, I'm definitely uh, enjoying your stats and uh, any any football fan loves a good stat. So I'd say you might have a few few more followers after this. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Thank you.